As we open God's word together, let's ask him to bless it to us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we come to your scriptures, we pray that you would deal bountifully with your servants, that we may live and keep your word. Open our eyes that we may behold wondrous things out of your law. Your testimonies are our delight. By Christ's spirit, may they be our counselors now. And hear us, for we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. And please turn with me to the book of Joshua, Joshua chapter 8. Most of the Pew Bibles, you'll find that on page 234. Joshua chapter 8, and we're going to begin our reading at verse 30 and read through uh, chapter 9, verse 27, so through the end of chapter 9. And if you're visiting with us, we're glad to have you here this evening. It's uh, We've been considering a series through the book of Joshua in the evening, and we've come to uh, chapter 8, verse 30, and so we're going to read beginning there and see what God's Word has to tell us. So let's pay careful attention, for this is God's holy Word. At that time, Joshua built an altar to the Lord, the God of Israel, on Mount Ebal, just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded the people of Israel, as it is written in the book of the law of Moses, an altar of uncut stones upon which no man has wielded an iron tool. And they offered on it burnt offerings to the Lord and sacrificed peace offerings. And there, in the presence of the people of Israel, he wrote on the stones a copy of the law of Moses, which he had written. And all Israel, sojourner as well as native-born, with their elders and officers and their judges, stood on opposite sides of the ark before the Levitical priests who carried the ark of the covenant of the Lord, half of them in front of Mount Gerizim and half of them in front of Mount Ebal, just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded at the first to bless the people of Israel. And afterward he read all the words of the law, the blessing and the curse, according to all that is written in the book of the law. There was not a word of all that Moses commanded that Joshua did not read before all the assembly of Israel and the women and the little ones and the sojourners who lived among them. As soon as all the kings who were beyond the Jordan in the hill country and in the lowland along the coast of the great sea toward Lebanon, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites and the Jebusites heard of this, they gathered together as one to fight against Joshua and Israel. But when the inhabitants of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and to Ai, they on their part acted with cunning and went and made ready provisions and took worn-out sacks for their donkeys and wineskins worn out and torn and mended with worn-out patched sandals on their feet and worn-out clothes. And all their provisions were dry and crumbly. And they went to Joshua in the camp of Gilgal and said to him and to the men of Israel, We have come from a distant country, so now make a covenant with us. But the men of Israel said to the Hivites, Perhaps you live among us, then how can we make a covenant with you? They said to Joshua, We are your servants. And Joshua said to them, Who are you and where do you come from? They said to him, from a very distant country, your servants have come because of the name of the Lord your God, for we have heard a report of him and all that he did in Egypt and all that he did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon, the king of Heshbon, and to Og, the king of Bashan, who lived in Ashtaroth. 
So our elders and all the inhabitants of our country said to us, take provisions in your hand for the journey and go meet them and say to them, we are your servants. Come now, make a covenant with us. Here is our bread. It was still warm when we took it from our houses as our food for journey on the day we set out to come to you. But now behold, it is dry and crumbly. These wineskins were new when we filled them, and behold, they have burst. And these garments and the sandals of ours are worn out from the very long journey. So the men took some of their provisions, but did not ask counsel from the Lord. And Joshua made peace with them, and made a covenant with them and let, to let them live. And the leaders of the congregation swore to them. At the end of three days, after they had made a covenant with them, they heard that they were their neighbors and that they lived among them. And the people of Israel set out and reached their cities on the third day. Now their cities were Gibeon, Chephira, Beeroth, and Kiriath-Jairim. But the people of Israel did not attack them because the leaders of the congregation had sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel. Then all the congregation murmured against their leaders. But all the leaders said to all, said to all the congregation, we have sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel, and now we may not touch them. This we will do to them. Let them live, lest the wrath be upon us because of the oath we have sworn to them. And the leaders said to them, let them live. So they became cutters of wood and drawers of water for all the congregation, just as the leaders had said of them. Joshua summoned them, and he said to them, Why did you deceive us, saying, We are very far from you when you dwell among us? Now, therefore, you are cursed, and some of you shall never be anything but servants, cutters of wood and drawers of water for the house of my God. They answered Joshua, Because it was told to your servants for a certainty that the Lord your God had commanded his servant Moses to give you all the land and to destroy all the inhabitants of the land from before you. So we feared greatly for our lives because of you and did this thing. And now behold, we are in your hand. Whatever seems good and right in your sight to do to us, do it. So he did this to them and delivered them out of the hand of the people of Israel, and they did not kill them. But Joshua made them that day cutters of wood and drawers of water for the congregation and for the altar of the Lord to this day in the place that he should choose. Thus far, the reading of God's word, may he bless it to us. We have in this passage really two covenant ceremonies, and we might call this passage a tale of two covenants, uh, with apologies to Charles Dickens. Um, this two different kinds of covenant settings we see happening, um, the covenant renewal that happens at the end of chapter 8 that had been commanded to the people of God in Deuteronomy 27 and 28. Uh, and also the foolish covenant that they make with the Gibeonites uh, in chapter 9. We want to look at the contrast between these two covenants as we see Israel engaged in both um, to see what one promises and what the other one fails to do. And as we consider the contrast between these two covenants, we want to see how God still delivers his people despite their foolishness and their failures. And so as we think about this passage, I want to think first about covenant renewal, which is what we see in chapter 8, uh, then covenant failure, which we see in, cov in chapter 9, and then think about covenant hope, that there is still hope for the people of God in the God who does not fail them. So I want to think about covenant renewal, covenant failure, and covenant hope this evening. 
Um, as we move to chapter 8, it's kind of an abrupt change of scenery. Uh, they've been going on a military campaign. They've gone on a campaign in the normal uh, military route that you would have gone, waging war through Canaan. They went to Jericho. They went to Ai. And the next place, logically, in order would have been Gibeon, um, where the Gibeonites come from asking to make this covenant. And so it would have been very normal for this story just to proceed in that direction. But at the beginning of chapter 8, the scene shifts rather radically. Um, And they go away from the campaign and they go veering off uh, to these mountains in order to reenact this covenant renewal ceremony that God has commanded them. Um, And so it'd be sort of like, you know, kind of heading towards San Diego and then all of a sudden going up to Escondido. Um, you're going away from where you're normally headed to do this thing that God had commanded them to do. And this might seem a strange ceremony for them to be engaged in. Um, I'm sure most of you have what Moses said in Deuteronomy 27 and 28 clearly in your mind. Um, But in case you don't, um, this is what God had commanded them to do when they got into the promised land to rehearse the covenant requirements, to rehearse the blessings and the cursings of the covenant, Um, and to be reminded of important things about their relationship with their God. So I thought it would be helpful for us to think about what they do and why they do it. Um, What they do and why they do it in this covenant renewal ceremony. Um, This place between Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim forms a kind of natural amphitheater. So it would have had kind of good acoustics for God's purposes here. And he had asked them there to build a simple altar. Uh, That's the point of having stones that are unworked. Just find a stone in the ground and make an altar. Don't, you know, don't do anything that would tempt you to idolatry by carving the stones in any kind of shape. Just take the stones as you find them, build a simple altar to the Lord, and offer whole burnt offerings on them, offerings that are consumed wholly on the altar. They sometimes called those Holocaust offerings because the whole of it was consumed on the altar. So offer the whole burnt offering, offer the peace offering um, that, that symbolize peace with God. Um, and then Joshua is also to write the law of God on stones before all of Israel. Now maybe this is just the Ten Commandments, and maybe it's the Ten Commandments and the blessings and the cursings uh, that are written in Deuteronomy 27 and 28. We're not sure exactly how much of the law that Joshua knew to write on these stones, but he did exactly as he was supposed to do, wrote out the law before the whole people of God. So they had the altar, they had the offerings, they had the law written out before them, um, and the Ark of the Covenant was in the middle of this, of this procedure. God stands at the middle surrounded by his people, and one of the things that God had said is six tribes were going to go on one hill and to recite all the blessings of the covenant. To remind God's people all the blessings that went with the covenant of God. All the blessings that are promised. Um, And then the other six tribes were to stand on the other mountain. And after the blessings had been recited, the other side would would echo with the curses. And remind all the curses of the covenant to those who failed to keep covenant with God. And everyone took part in this, we see uh, in this passage. If we look at verse 35 of chapter 8. Everyone who is there takes part. Um, All the assembly of Israel, all the women and the little ones and the sojourners who lived with them. 
Everyone participates in this covenant renewal ceremony. Everyone hears the law. Everyone sees the sacrifices. Everyone hears the promises of blessings. Everyone hears the promises of cursings. And after they hear them all, they say, Amen. Uh, So it will surely be. Uh, That is the announcement of the whole congregation together. Um, The law is read. The consequences of obeying it and disobeying it are read The sacrifices and altars is seen. The Ark of the Covenant stands in the middle. All the people participate. That's what they do. Um, And we would want to ask the question, what is the significance of all of this? Uh, Why do they do this? What is God trying to teach his people through this? Um, Well, it's to remind them of the nature of the covenant. That's why a covenant renewal ceremony is done, to remind God's people what kind of arrangement they are in with God and what its significance is. Um, Dr. Klein was very helpful with this uh, idea of covenant and what a covenant renewal ceremony represents. First, it's a declaration, again, of God's lordship over his people. God stands at the center of all of this, the ark that symbolized the presence of the Lord. God was, they were taught that the Lord dwelt above the cherubim, and so God is there in their midst. It's a, re, it's a reorientation of the whole lives of God's people to recognize that God is in their midst and stands at the center of all they do, uh, that he is their God and they are his people. It's a reminder to them of God's lordship as king over them. Um, secondly, it's a reminder that he is consecrating a people to himself, that they are a holy people that they've been set apart to be part of this people of God. The altar is a reminder of that. Um, Every time a a sacrifice was put on the altar for one of those whole burnt offerings, for, you know, you can hear in that word, a holocaust offering, it's completely consumed in the fire. It's a sign of the wrath of God against sin. Um, It's also, there's then a peace offering to remind God's people that they have peace with God. And the altar stands to remind them that they have been a consecrated people, a people that have been set apart and holy, purified by God for a holy purpose, that he is consecrating them as a people to himself. They have been separated from the world. They belong to him. So it's a declaration of his lordship. It's a reminder that they are a consecrated people, consecrated to his service, and that that involves a divinely commanded order of life, that coming under the lordship of God, being set apart as God's people, means that you come under his divine law, his divine command for life. That's why the law was read. That's why it was written out before their eyes, uh, so they could hear the law read and see the law read and hear what God's requirements of the law were for them. And what does God principally want to communicate to his people when he sets forth this order of life? He communicates this order of life to be for them a blessing. God is not just doing these things because he can, because he's God, and he just arbitrarily imposes them on us. Uh, What did God want them to understand? He wanted them to understand that this order of life would be for them a blessing. All the blessings that would follow if they would live in covenant with him. That he had set them apart to be blessed. 
That's the primary thing the covenant was meant to announce to God's people. That's why all the blessings were to echo off the mountain in front of all the people, what God was promising to do for them. Um, we, we can maybe think of those blessings in terms of, of first provision that God would provide for them. And there were wonderful blessings that, you know, your barns will be so filled with food, you'll still be busy, busy gathering in the harvest when, when the next harvest comes in. You'll have so much food, you won't know what to do with it. God will provide for you abundantly in this land that flows with milk and honey. That God will protect you in this land, not just provide for you, but protect you. So much so that, that 10 of you will be able to chase 100 people, and 100 of you will be able to chase 10,000. The Lord will be with you, and he will stand with you against all who would come against you. The Lord will be your protection, and the Lord will dwell within your midst. That was the great covenant promise that the Lord will be with you. He will dwell in the midst of his people. He will be present there. And that's what this divinely order, this divinely commanded order of life was to hold out to God's people. Here is the way to live so that you will be blessed. That was God's intention for his people. The blessings are primary. The blessings are primary. They're what he focuses their attention on as these commands are given. The cursings are a sad reminder of what will happen if they fail to keep covenant, if they fail to live with the Lord. And the cursings warn them that if they fail to keep covenant, then all of the blessings will be taken away. The curses are essentially the reverse of the blessing. Instead of provision, you'll have that taken away from you. You'll face famines. You'll face raiding parties will come in and take what you've worked for. Um, if you violate the covenant, you'll lose my protection. You'll have people come in and be able to afflict you and attack you. And the ultimate curse of the covenant is that for a time you will lose my, my presence among you. That if it's pushed to the extreme, my glory will depart. Um, but the cursings are always just secondary warnings. What God has established the covenant order for is for blessing, for abundant life. That's what he sets before God's people, uh, the rule of life by which they can live and be blessed. Uh, so that is co God's covenant design. That's what the covenant renewal ceremony was meant to do for God's people, to put before all of them. God's divinely commanded order for life so that they might live, so they might experience his blessing and know uh, the way to experience blessing with God. Um, it's an echo of what God did in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve, um, set before them life, uh, the way to live before the Lord, but warned them of the consequences of the curse that would follow for disobedience. Uh, God's design is for blessedness. Uh, that we would live with him forever. The problem is our failure. Uh, the design is good. Our God is good. His purposes are good. The problem is his people are failures. And right against the goodness and good purposes of our God, in the end of chapter 8, we're faced with the covenant failures that God's people experience in chapter 9. Uh, when they do move towards Gibeon and we have this covenant failure as they make a foolish covenant uh, with the Gibeonites. We see the stage sort of returns 
in chapter 9 to the, the regular, ordinary process of the story. Now they're moving towards other places in the promised land, heading towards Gibeon, which was one of the cities of the Hivites. And we find that all of Canaan is being stirred up um, about the approach of the Israelites. So we read about this sort of coalition of opposition that begins to form in Canaan against the people of God. In verses 1 and 2, all of them are coming together, banding together to try to resist what is coming. They're going to gather together and fight as one against Joshua and Israel. So we're introduced to this coalition that is gathering to try to oppose what Israel's doing. And then we hear about these group of people who decide this is not a good idea. Um, it's interesting that the Gibeonites are the ones who come up with the idea that this is not a good idea to engage in this coalition. Um, it's interesting that they are the ones uh, who do this. We learn from the passage that they are Hivites. Um, and chapter 10, verse 2 tells us that all their men are warriors. So it presents Gibeon to us almost as like what you would think of as like Sparta in ancient Greece. A, a unique city that was dedicated to war, who was filled with warriors. And maybe because it's filled with warriors, they look at the, at the results in Jericho and Ai and say, it doesn't matter how many people you gather together, this is a fight you can't win. Uh, maybe it's because they are warriors that they know which battles can be won and which battles can't be won. And they conclude there's no point in joining a coalition against Israel to try to fight them off. Um, we know what God has done for them so far. We don't have any hope that we'll be able to hold them off by force of arms, no matter how, much of, how many of us gather together. So what do they do instead? They come up with a cunning plan to try to trick them. Uh, they get old and crumbly bread, they get old and crumbly clothes and old and crumbly sandals, and they make it look like they've come on a long journey uh, to try to come and to make a covenant with Israel. Um, they even, you know, even their story is sort of plausible. You know, they say, we've heard what you did to the Amorites on the other side of the Jordan um, and all the things that you've done. They conveniently leave out what they've done recently. Uh, so it makes it sound like, you know, they're not up on the most recent news of what they did in, you know, Jericho and Ai. They're, they've come from this long way away and, you know, they just want to come and make a covenant and they're not nearby at all. It should be just fine. Um, and Israel is suspicious, right? They, they say, well, I, we don't know. You could be neighbors. And then they show all their crumbly old things and say, well, no, see, we, these were brand new when we left, um, they've become, you know, very crumbly, and um, and they they convince Israel to make this covenant, um, and the covenant is carelessly made. Right, they're right to be suspicious, they're right to investigate. Um, they get kind of outfoxed by them, and believe that they are who they pretend to be. Uh, but the real problem is they didn't ask the Lord what to do. Right, that's, that's the, the verse that stands out, verse 14. Um, so the men took some of their provisions, but they did not ask counsel from the Lord. Um, Joshua had a means by, for asking from the Lord what they ought to do. The high priest had the Urim and the Thummim. And Joshua could go to the high priest and ask the will of the Lord in certain things. Um, and God had established a means by which they could ask from the Lord and get a certain answer. 
We don't know how exactly this all worked, but it was a means by which Joshua could inquire of the Lord by the high priest, and the Lord would direct them. Um, And so he could get an answer, but it's clear that they don't seek to get the answer, and they get out fox. They make this covenant carelessly with them, and within three days, they realize that these people are nearby neighbors that they should not have made a covenant with in the first place. Um, They had some way to ask God's advice, and they didn't do it. Um, And it's a reminder to us of our need to continue to seek the advice of the Lord. Um, right, we can fall into that trap, into that danger of thinking we can figure things out on our own. Um, one commentator said, we not only need God's power to overwhelm our obvious enemies, but also the wisdom of God to detect our subtle ones. Unfortunately, the church too often craves God's power while it ignores God's wisdom. And it's a reminder to us that sometimes the devil is easy to spot when he comes at you like a roaring lion seeking people to devour He's sometimes more difficult to spot when he masquerades as an angel of light. Um, And there we need not only the power of God, but we need the wisdom of God. Um, Now Joshua had a very specific way to acquire the wisdom of God. We don't have that same ability, so how do we seek the will of God? Well, we look to his word. We have something actually more sure than Joshua did. We have the Word of God. That's how we know what God's will is in certain things. Um, you'll sometimes hear people say, well, you know, I think this is God's will for my life, or I think that is God's will for my life. And it's actually in God's Word that He's explained His will for our lives. Um, and if we think God's will for our life is something other than is in His Word, we need to be checked by His Word to recognize that He's revealed there what He wants for us. That's why it's so important for us to continue to be in the Word, to study God's Word, to know the whole counsel of God, that our hearts are willing to submit to the Word. If we find that we've been doing foolish and careless things, things that are out of step with the Spirit and according to God's Word, that we are willing to come back into step and let God's Word direct us where we must go. Um, And we can do that in the confidence that we have the help of the Holy Spirit. Uh, to guide our feet into the ways of peace, that God has not left us without help in interpreting his word. He's left us with his spirit to help govern us and guide us. He's given us a church to help us so that we are not alone. And we have the opportunity to pray to God, to seek his will and counsel as well. Um, And so we should not fail to make use of these means of seeking the wisdom of God um, and not trust to our own ability to interpret things in the world. That's how we get in trouble, uh, by leaning on our own understanding. And what is the wisdom that we heard already from Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 and 6? Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will make straight your paths. Uh, Israel's careless covenant is foolishly made. Um, It's foolishly made, but... We also see here that at least they do not compound their failure by breaking the covenant. The covenant is foolishly made by the leaders of Israel, but it's wisely kept. Uh, When the people find out that these are near neighbors, they don't want to keep the covenant. They want to go destroy them like God has told them to destroy everybody else. But the leaders wisely say, no, we can't do that because we have promised in the name of the Lord. We've sworn 
by the God of Israel not to do this thing. And so even though these are cities near neighbors, part of Canaan, part of the people who should have been destroyed, they recognize that they should adhere to the name, the, the oath that they made in the name of the Lord because to fail to do that would be to compound their failure, not make things better. Um, would be to blaspheme the name of the Lord by breaking what they'd promised to do in his name. Uh, One commentator said, it's a reminder to us that the sacred name of God is more precious than the wealth of the whole world. Uh, And Psalm 15.4 tells us that one of the marks of the godly is they swear to their own hurt and do not change. Uh, That if they've sworn to their own hurt, they do not change their minds. They keep the word that they've sworn. Um, that they don't compound the failure is a good thing, but it still gives continuing consequences for the people of God. Um, this is not to say that every makes everything okay, that they don't break the covenant. Um, there are continuing consequences from this covenant failure because Israel has now invited an untouchable danger into their midst. Uh, why did God want the people of the land destroyed? Because he said they will be a snare to you. Um, And now here is this people that are going to live in their midst who they cannot destroy, um, who will bring their ungodly ways into the midst of the people um, and will be a danger to them. Um, They have an untouchable danger living in their midst. Uh, For Gibeon, it doesn't work out well either because they have this unending curse on account of what they do. Uh, For their cunning, they are made perpetual slaves. Uh, They keep their lives, but they lose their freedom. Uh, They're forever going to be woodcutters and water carriers uh, for the people of God. You know, Joshua pronounces a just sentence on their wickedness by pronouncing this curse, and Gibeon even acknowledges its guilt and accepts the consequences. Uh, You know, do to us whatever seems right. Uh, They acknowledge that they deserve the consequences of this. And so we're reminded that when when there is covenant failure, um, when there is covenant failure, there are continuing consequences. There are no good good answers when we've made bad decisions often. Uh, There are just difficult decisions and consequences that have to be lived with. Um, And this is a reminder to us that the consequences of this covenant failure, this sin, is misery. Um, It's another reminder to us not to ever get the sense that you can sin without consequences, uh, that you can sin and not have the misery, um, that misery and sin always go together. Um, And once sin is entered into, there are these difficult times that will always follow. Guilt can be forgiven when God's people repent, uh, but the misery of sin is much more difficult to deal with. It's a reminder here that the mess of misery we get ourselves into is it often leaves us with only bad choices, with only bad options before us because we've made bad choices. Israel could break the covenant they swore in the Lord's name, and that would not be good. They could bring God's wrath down upon them or they could keep the covenant they made and have to live with this Canaanite people who would mislead them. Neither is a good solution. Uh, But that's where you often are left, where you've made bad decisions to have only other bad decisions before you. Um, Covenant failure has left them entangled uh, with Canaanites and and has left Gibeon in a state of perpetual slavery. Um, So I said we were going to end with covenant hope. And so we might ask, where is the hope? Uh, Where can we find hope in this passage uh, where there is set before us this 
covenant that God's people seem doomed to fail at, seem doomed to bring down the curses on themselves if left to themselves to keep covenant. Well, we find the hope in the midst of our failures from our unfailing God. To be reminded that there are two parties to the covenant. There are the people of God who are called to live life with the Lord, but there is also the Lord who has promised, I will be your God and you will be my people. The hope we find is in God, uh, the Lord whose purpose um, is still accomplished even through um, the bad things that his people do. And the purposes of God are prevailing even despite what has happened. But God directs things so that his purposes will still prevail. His purpose was to pour out judgment on the wickedness of Gibeon. Do they escape his judgment? No, they're brought into perpetual slavery as a result of their wickedness. They're reduced from a race of warriors to a race of woodcutters and water carriers. They are going to serve the house of the Lord forever. They are going to serve the people in perpetual slavery. God's purpose uh, to punish them for their wickedness is still prevailing. God's purpose was to remove them from the land so the people could have it for their possession. Is Gibeon removed from their land? Yes, they're forced from their homes to lead a homeless, wandering life of servitude, following God's people and serving them in God's tabernacle. Uh, We'll see that God will work through this covenant failure in chapter 10, so the covenant with Gibeon acts as a catalyst for the Canaanites to attack Israel, which will ultimately lead to their destruction. The Canaanites will see this as an alliance, uh, not as the subjugation of slaves that it is, but as an alliance between this warrior tribe and Israel and say, well, now if they're all going to gang up on us, we really need to go out and attack them. And God is going to use this as a catalyst to bring about the destruction of the Canaanites. Um, We find hope in that God's purposes still prevail despite our weaknesses and failures. Our God is still working to accomplish His purpose. Second, we also find hope because there is God's provision for sin. There is an altar. There is an altar that is satisfying for sins. Uh, The passage is interesting that begins with an altar and ends with an altar. Begins with the altar at the covenant renewal ceremony. It ends with the altar at which the Gibeonites are going to have to serve as woodcutters and water carriers. It's a reminder that there is an altar that can cleanse the people of God. Um, there is an altar that can take away sin. That God has provided a whole burnt offering for his people, consumed in their place, has provided a peace offering that can make peace between them and their God. There is a way to be brought back into fellowship when we fail. There is a remedy for sin that God provides. I think it's significant that that altar of sacrifice was on the mountain of curses. Um, It was the altar that was standing there on the mountain that represented the curses of the covenant. Um, It was the altar that prevented the curses from falling, that offered a remedy for God's people that stood between the curses and the judge on his throne. That was always the beauty of the Day of the Atonement when the blood was taken in to the Holy of Holies and that blood of the atoning sacrifice was spread on the mercy seat. 
Where did the blood of the sacrifice go? It went symbolically between the law and the judge. The blood that took away sin stood between the law and the judge who sat on his throne. It interceded for them. What were all these pictures of? What does this mean to picture for the people of God? That there is an altar that takes away sin. There's an altar that turns away the curse. There's an altar that can sacrifice for sin and make peace with God. What was that altar continuing to teach Israel throughout all of its generations? They were to look for that sacrifice that was coming that would take away sin. And in these last days, we understand that that altar was picturing the cross of Jesus Christ, where he would be lifted up and consumed in our place, that he would die as that Holocaust offering, completely consumed body and soul for the sake of his people, that he would be the offering that would make peace between God and a failing people, that he would receive the pronouncement of curses on himself for our law-breaking that we might receive his blessing for his perfect law-keeping. This was all to point us towards the Lord Jesus Christ. As Galatians 3.13 would tell us, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. He did that on the cross. And why? Well, the next verse goes on to say, So then in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. That's the beauty of what our Lord does for us. He takes the curse and turns away the wrath of God from us so that we can receive all of the blessedness uh, that he has accomplished by his perfect law keeping. And God's people find their ultimate hope in God's promise forever. Because even in the midst of reciting the blessings and the cursings, reciting the law, what is the first thing that the law declares to the people of God. If we think of the Ten Commandments, the first thing is declared is, I am the Lord your God. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. This law comes to you as as from a God who has already redeemed you, who has already shown himself to be a covenant-keeping God and a Savior. Um. That's the hope of the people of God, that we fail, but he does not fail. Uh, He keeps covenant by being a redeemer, by making sure that we can live in a life of covenant relationship with him. That's the glorious promise of the covenant of grace. I will be your God and you will be my people. Not because you perfectly keep the covenant, but because I don't fail to do what I've promised. That was always what he had promised to do, to save his people. And that's what he has done by his son on the cross. And that's why God's people should never lose hope. Because despite when we fail, we have an advocate before the Father. When we fail, we have a God who will not let us go. We have a redeemer and a savior who is always the hope of failures like us. So even though we will continue to be beset with sin and failure and its miserable consequences, as Jesus said, in this world we will have tribulation. He also said, but you take heart for I've overcome the world. Now when we fail, let us look to our Lord and seek him to save us from our sins and know that he will secure 
the blessings for his people, and he's our hope even when we fail. Praise his name. Amen. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we pray that you would help us to live lives of service to you, that we would seek to pursue those things that we know are pleasing in your sight, that we would not think of sin as a minor thing and think, oh, well, we can just sin and be forgiven, that's fine, but we recognize what a serious business it is to hear your law and to desire to keep your law, but we remind ourselves also that when we do fail, despite our best efforts and and involve ourselves in sin and misery and leave ourselves with only bad choices, that we have the hope of your salvation. As the Apostle John could write, little children, I write these things to you so that you do not sin but immediately reminded us that if anyone does sin, we do have an advocate before the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one, who is the propitiation not only for our sins, but for the sins of the whole world. And so we thank you, Lord, for enlivening us by the Holy Spirit so that we might begin to live according to your law. We pray that we would do our best, Lord, to seek to live a life that's pleasing in your sight. But when we are stumble and fall, and we do stumble and fall in many ways, thank you for presenting us also with a vision of a Savior who saves us from our sins, who will not let us fail, but will deliver us without spot or blemish on the last day. We thank you for his work that has turned away your wrath against us on the cross, that he ever lives to continue to intercede for us, who is with us always, even to the very end of the age. Help us always to look to him and lean on him for all things. And hear us, we pray in his name. Amen.